I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know that peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? Their wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate? I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Check, check. Hi. Um, If my voice sounds different, it's because I'm recording on my cell phone right now. Uh, I don't have my recording gear with me, so I'm about to go out to a restaurant. And, you know, if you walk into a restaurant with a bunch of microphones, you're kind of conspicuous. I am on a secret mission. Where am I? At an undisclosed location in New York City. Well, it's disclosed to me, but I can't tell you. Where am I going to eat? Again, sorry, top secret. But I can tell you who I'm going to eat with. New York Times restaurant critic Pete Wells. He has been called the most read and most feared food writer in America. He can make or break a restaurant with the power of one of his reviews. And he doesn't want restaurants to know he's coming because he doesn't want special treatment. So he makes reservations under fake names. Even once he's inside, he tries not to be recognized. That's why there's only like one picture of him online. And I think it's from a long time ago. So I'm out here on a street corner trying to find this guy and I'm not even exactly sure what he looks like. Where is Pete? Oh, I think that might be him coming down the street. Yes, I waved, and he waved back. Pete, it's you. Yes, how do you know? (laughs) Well, you you don't look so different from that one picture out there. Don't I look older and rounder? No, you look just as good as you did in that picture. Thank you. (laughs) When Pete goes out, he doesn't wear full-on disguises, but he does change up his look. The night we met, it seemed he had gone with college professor. Another thing I read is that in the restaurant, I shouldn't refer to him as Pete. That could tip off the servers. So if I'm not going to call you Pete, what should I call you? Oh, I don't. Oh, boy, that's a really good question. You could. um, uh, Why don't you call me? uh, I'm so bad at this. (laughs) This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies. It's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people. Before we get into it, we're getting ready to tape another call-in episode of The Sporkful, which means I want to hear from you. I want to hear your food disputes. Are you having a food fight with a friend or family member? Do you need my expert advice on how to settle it? Do you have a hot take you want to share? Send me an email at hello at sporkful.com and let me know what culinary conundrum is on your mind. Again, send me a note at hello at sporkful.com. You might hear yourself on a future episode of the show. Thanks. Okay, now to Pete Wells. Pete's been the New York Times restaurant critic since 2011. It's a position that comes with some occupational hazards. Have you ever burnt your tongue on like the first bite of food? Oh gosh, yeah. Yeah. And then what, you just get up, you're like, all right, this night's ruined. I'll come back tomorrow. (laughs) I do do that. Pete covers a lot of ground from places where dinner for four costs $3,000 to mom and pop shops where you can get a feast for 10 bucks. When he finds a place he really loves, you can feel his excitement in his column. When he ate wontons at one restaurant he reviewed, he wrote of the shrimp inside, you can see their bodies glowing pink through the thin skins of the wrappers whose loose ends trail behind the plump round wontons like comets' tails. 
That's how it sounds when Pete likes something. But when he doesn't like something, he is not shy. He's probably best known for his 2012 takedown of Guy Fieri's Times Square restaurant. The piece ignited such a firestorm that Guy himself took a red eye from California that night to do a live interview on the Today Show from his restaurant the next morning. More recently, Pete made waves when he slammed Per Se, one of the fanciest places in America. He compared the broth in one dish to bong water. So I was feeling just a little bit intimidated to go out to dinner with him. I didn't take much at the restaurant for all the aforementioned reasons. There was no way I was going to blow the New York Times restaurant critics cover. But I did sneak in a bit of recording at the restaurant using my phone. Did you say rotisserie chicken? I mean, isn't this something they're famous for here? I mean, I I actually kind of have a rule. I have a rule that I don't ever order chicken in restaurants because it's kind of like the blah thing, except if it's like the specialty. Like if it's a fried chicken joint or or a rotisserie chicken joint, otherwise, no. So I I can go either way on rotisserie chicken. Um, Maybe I would would say pernil. Right. Okay. Or octopus. You can get the mofongo with a side of pernil. Perfect. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm I'm a... I'm a, I love octopus. Okay. I think that'll do the trick. Yeah. <laughs> all in all, I ordered pernil, which is slow-roasted pork shoulder, chicharrones, rotisserie chicken, and octopus. Later in the show, I'll tell you how it all tasted and what Pete thought of it. But let's turn now to our conversation in studio, the morning after the dinner, when we debriefed. I loved watching Pete's intense focus as he tasted each item. And there was a lot to taste, One of the other rules when you go out with Pete is no duplicate orders because he has to sample as many different items as possible. He only had a couple bites of each dish, which, despite what you may think, usually means he likes it. He says when a dish is bad, he doesn't send it back. I actually want the bad dish on the table so I can keep tasting it until I figure out what's wrong with it, you know. So, like, if it's not a matter of, like, you know, it's not cooked right, if 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 there's something actually, like, it's just... This just tastes wrong. I'll I'll keep eating it and eating it until I think I know what happened to it, you know. And then it becomes like an interesting like science project for me, you know, like just the forensic eating, you know. How did this happen? How did this poor soup go so wrong? That's funny. It's funny that you compare it to a forensic process because that's uh, when I was watching you eat at our dinner last night and and sort of your what happens to you when you take a bite of food, you kind of like, you hunch over, you have the food in your mouth, you're looking down at the table, and as you're chewing and processing, your head starts turning slowly to one side, almost like 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 um, like um the needle on a meter that's kind of like registering, tick, 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 tick. It's like it's registering input. And it keeps registering and registering until all of a sudden there's sort of a ding, and your head pops up. And your eyes open, and it's like as if like okay, input complete. You know, like <laughs> I've never, I've never seen this. <laughs> <laughs> I should have video, I should have uh, surreptitiously videotaped you doing it so I could show it back to you. I've never seen. I've seen it in other people that like usually food professionals have this very very attentive style of eating where it's almost like you know everybody be quiet. I have to listen for the you know the oboes. Pete usually practices his own very attentive style of eating five nights a week. He's always checking out possible places to review. I wondered how going out that often affects your relationship with food. Well, I'll tell you, if you like regularly consume like 
six or seven thousand calories at a single meal like I do, like you find that the next day your appetite's kind of moderate, you know. I I mean there even, you know, last night when we went out, I wasn't very hungry. And remember I said I, I I can't remember what I had for lunch. I must have had a big lunch. I had a sardine. I realized later I had a sardine on a piece of toast and that was my huge lunch. So I'm very often not hungry at all until I sit down. And even then, I'm not really hungry. That feels a little sad, Pete, I have to say. That's all right. There are worse things. <laughs> I mean, I still enjoy I, I, it. I, don't, I mean, I don't feel so sorry for yeah. you. It seems like you're doing all right. But I just mean like, you know, um, when I first set out in this career, I was worried that if food became my job, that I would not get as much pleasure out of it. And... I, for me, at least, that hasn't happened, partly because really I think of myself as more of, of an audio podcast professional who happens to do food. My job doesn't actually involve any more eating than an average person does, right. unlike your job. But, I like, do you worry that you're losing your love of food? No. No, that's never happened. But that's you're never so. hungry. You sit down to eat and you're not I hungry. I know, but you don't need to be hungry. I mean, you do, I mean you're I mean, hungry enough. I'm hungry enough that I can, like, Take in the next six thousand calories. Like it's <laughs> that's not way a to problem. power through, Pete. <laughs> I want to pause pause this part of the conversation and kind of go back a little bit. Um, you grew up outside Providence, Rhode Island. Was food a big deal in your house growing up? Uh, yes and no. I mean, we um, we always had. Dinner together, my mother, father, sister, and I had dinner together every night while the evening news was on and uh, sit around the table and talk to each other and, you know, all that sort of stuff that, that people say is kind of disappearing now. But that, that, like, that was part of my life. However, like, we didn't really sit and talk about the food. That wasn't so much a thing. You know, like, um, like I think my parents had a perfect marriage from one point of view, which was that, like, my mother was, didn't care a whole lot about food and and wasn't, like, the most attentive cook. And my father just appreciated all food because, I think, because it was food. He just looked like, oh, there's food. This is amazing, right? And, uh, and I don't think she ever told herself that she was a great cook, but uh, my father was just the, the perfect audience for her. Do you remember when you started to realize that you had strong opinions about food? I mean, I don't think I ever thought of it that way, but I did. I did. I mean, I had I had opinions about, you know, my mother's cooking that I didn't express. Um, but uh, You but, weren't like, no stars, had, uh, Mom, I'm no, out of here. No, I mean, you just couldn't. You just you couldn't. I mean, because my dad was sitting there saying, this is the best thing ever. So you couldn't say, I know you're trying to make a pot pie, Mom, but it's it's actually just kind of uncooked pastry dough with chicken in it. <laughs> like, you just can't, right? Um, but then I, it did get, get me interested in cooking, which I think a lot of, like, a lot of people who cook end up doing it almost for, like, self preservation or self-defense or or just because, you know, you, you like something and you, and you, you don't want to tear out a page of a cookbook and hand it to your mother and say, let's have this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, were you opinionated when you were a kid? Probably. <laughs> I mean, yeah, chances are. So you were always opinionated. 
were you a person that felt comfortable with a certain amount of power? Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, like, did you like to be— I mean, I'm still very—I mean, I still have a very kind of <sighs> uncomfortable relationship with, like, the, the you know, the power that the times confers, and it's not—and I don't mistake it for my own power. But that power, at least as long as you have the job, you're, you're connected to it. I wonder if having that kind of power for a number of years changes a person. I mean, I've changed in a lot of ways in this job, and I don't know how many of them have to do with power. I mean, I think about I think about things more carefully, and I think about how to use the power, I suppose. Like, I think when I first started the job, I had the feeling that in a sense it was a consumer service that the Times was willing to spend this money on these really expensive restaurants to tell people what's worth it. And that and, and that, that was a, a good use of money. And I don't think that's quite so important anymore. And I'm more interested in kind of where I sort of shine the spotlight of the Times than I am in where I spend the money of the Times. So I'm more interested in, in uh, getting some attention to to places that can't afford to to buy attention. For example, you know, last night um, we went to a Puerto Rican restaurant. I want to be able to tell people Puerto Rican food actually matters in New York City. We have a big Puerto Rican community and some delicious, delicious Puerto Rican restaurants. And it's been a long time since I've heard anybody talk about one of them. And I'm excited to be able to do that. That's the kind of power I find myself more interested in now than than just, you know, can I can I make Thomas Keller stay up at night? Do you know what what changed to cause you to to move your focus after the first couple of years on the job? A little bit of it honestly was was, you know, when this really noxious anti-immigrant sentiment started entering the mainstream of American conversation and I just thought well you know those of us who write about restaurants especially we're like right at one of the intersection of like the immigrant experience and the and the non-immigrant experience and 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 we're you know we uh, can direct people to places where they might come to understand and appreciate immigrant culture and immigrant contributions and I think I maybe got a little bit more serious about wanting to do that with some regularity and not allow the job to be completely overtaken by money. Coming up, we report back on the previous night's dinner, and Pete tells me how many stars he would give the Oreo cookie. Stick around. And now, a delicious word from our sponsors. Mm-mm, it's very good. In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. 
You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in like in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, a smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at Tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K.com. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, a business tripper, or a long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. They've got over 7,000 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels, and you will get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. I especially love those Cambria Hotels. They have locally inspired hotel bars with all kinds of specialty cocktails, downtown locations right in the center of all the action. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces. That way, if you're a business traveler, you'll be able to get all your work done. On-site restaurants, fantastic. And then at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles and great pools for the whole family and spacious rooms. I mean, if you have kids, you understand the importance of the pool. If you stay at a hotel with a pool, Almost nothing else matters. Fortunately, all the Choice Hotels take care of all the other stuff too, but I mean, a pool is a great start. Whatever kind of vacation you're going on, whatever kind of travel you're doing, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn Best Buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyards has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. they got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash sporkful. 
Welcome back to The Sporkful. I'm Dan Pashman. Hey, before we get back to the show, my first cookbook, Anything's Possible, is coming out next month. Now, I knew I wouldn't be able to write this book alone, so I hired a team of recipe developers, culinary pros, who would help me turn a bunch of half-boiled ideas into finished recipes. And in each episode of The Sporkful this month, we're going to take a few minutes out to feature one of those developers, so you can hear their stories and learn more about their contributions to my book. This week, I'm talking with Darnell Reed. I met Darnell before I even started on the cookbook. After my pasta-shaped cascatelli went viral, I was reaching out to a bunch of restaurants to see if they'd feature it on their menus. And a friend connected me with Darnell, who's a James Beard Award semifinalist. He's the chef and owner of Luella's Southern Kitchen in Chicago. I went to see him there so we could work on some recipes for the cookbook together. So we got the crawfish, the guanciale, the the shallots and garlic you said in there? Yep, and I'm gonna take a little bit of the hot water. A little pasta cooking water? Yeah, we'll need. Darnell spent many years in hotel restaurants around the city, working his way up from dishwasher to executive chef. They made all kinds of food at the restaurant, from French and Italian to Peruvian. Once Darnell was running the place, he also made a lot of Southern food, an homage to his roots. And it was a hit. People were like, whoa, that chicken and waffle. Oh, that, that, that shrimp and grit. You know, like, those were the items that they were gravitating towards. One summer, Darnell was asked to create a special summer menu for the hotel where he was executive chef. So he decided to go all Southern, a menu that included gumbo, chicken and waffles, she crab soup, and much more. But then he got word that the hotel chain's corporate office had some doubts about this menu. Darnell says they were concerned it might not be upscale enough or that it wouldn't appeal to their customers. So they sent the chain's head chef and food and beverage director to sample the menu themselves. Honestly, I, I was a little bit like... Offended, I would say, because I was like, you didn't do this to me when I when I was, we were making Peruvian. You didn't do this, but now that I'm making Southern, it's like. With this, Darnell raises an eyebrow, but he had to do what was asked of him. So he made the dishes for these guys from corporate. They tried the food. They loved it. They said, who was your inspiration? And I'm like, I, I never thought about that. I never thought about who my inspiration was, but I, I would have to say that it's my, it's my great grandmother because she's the one who used to cook all of this food that I cook for you guys. Corporate agreed that Darnell could go ahead with his special Southern menu. They even wanted him to name it after his great-grandmother. But right when it was about to launch, the hotel brought in a new general manager who outright refused to serve a Southern menu. The implication was that this food didn't belong at a fancy downtown Chicago hotel. Darnell wasn't happy. I kind of got exhausted with the idea that I have to continue to fight you guys to put these items on the menu. After 18 years with the company, Darnell left. In late 2014, he opened Luella's Southern Kitchen, a restaurant named for his great-grandmother who inspired him. Fast forward to today, and Luella's is a Chicagoland destination with a second location at Soldier Field, home of the Chicago Bears. Darnell is a two-time James Beard Award semifinalist, and he's launched Luella's Southern Popcorn. Order online. They ship. And yes, Darnell did end up serving Cascatelli. In fact, Luella's was the very first restaurant in America to serve it. Darnell made Cajun crawfish carbonara with cascatelli, and it may be the most luscious carbonara I have ever had. That is perfection. Thank you. And the crawfish adds color, too, which honestly, that that wasn't part of my thinking process, but it does. (laughs) Mm. Darnell and I adapted his recipe for home cooks and put that into my cookbook. We also teamed up on recipes for a shrimp and andouille mac and cheese and dirty orzo, a vegan play on dirty rice that Janie and I could not stop eating. So if you're in Chicago, go to Luella's. And if you want to meet Darnell, check this out. He's going to be joining me on stage at our live Sporkful taping and book signing in Chicago on March 21st. We'll be in conversation with Joanne Molinaro, a.k.a. The Korean Vegan. 
That's March 21st in Chicago. Tickets for that event and all the rest of my book tour events are on sale now at sporkful.com slash tour. And remember, Anything's Possible is available for pre-order right now. If you pre-order it by March 18th, you're going to get an invite to a special Zoom cooking class I'll be hosting just for people who pre-ordered. We'll hang out, we'll chat, we'll cook, we'll eat. It's going to be fun. All pre-orders are eligible, including pre-orders for signed copies. To place your order and get your invite to the class, go to sporkful.com slash book. We'll return to my studio conversation with Pete Wells in a minute. But first, back to the previous night's dinner. Pete did give away that it was a Puerto Rican restaurant. Everything was really good. Yes, really good. I'm pulling out all my best adjectives for our show with the New York Times restaurant critic. The rotisserie chicken was juicy. Chicharrones were crispy. We had mafungo, which is mashed plantains mixed with pork and spices. That was served with a pork broth that was, I was just like drinking it with my spoon. It was so amazing. Pete seemed especially interested in the alcapurias, which are like fritters made with plantains and meat. To my taste, they were a bit more sweet than I like with my meat, and maybe a little heavy. Pete was pleased with my addition of the octopus. We agreed it provided a nice counterpoint to all the meats and fried foods. So there you go, that's my review. I don't think Pete's job is in danger. Outside in the street afterwards, doggy bag in hand, Pete told me that even if he didn't end up reviewing this place, the meal was still crucial research. It would help him evaluate other Puerto Rican restaurants by giving him a point of comparison. And the night had personal significance for him, too. He used to live in this neighborhood and came to this restaurant all the time. I'm relieved that it's still good. I, you know, I haven't been here in maybe 20 years. and I've changed, and maybe, you know, my I, I'm not as easily satisfied. So it would have been a little depressing to come back and said, oh, this food's exactly the same, and I don't like it now. You know, <laughs> but... But it seems at least as good, maybe better, or I, I don't know. It's, it was very, very good. Not everything, you know. Some things were better than others, which is, I think, was always true. But uh, it's a, like, that's a good restaurant. Another thing that hasn't changed for Pete over the years is his code of conduct as a reviewer. Some of his rules have been pretty standard for the times over the years. When a new place opens, he waits at least two months before reviewing it to give it a chance to work out the initial kinks. And he must eat at a place at least three times before writing a review. Pete also has rules about which bad meals warrant bad reviews. You don't attack a restaurant that nobody's heard of. There has to be some kind of pre-existing interest in the dining public about a place if you're really, really going to take it down. So if you went out, let's say you got a tip that there was a mom-and-pop shop, and yeah. you, you go out there, and you and your personal opinion is not great, yeah. you would just not review that place. I would, there's plenty of places like that that I just don't I don't review. When I've done negative reviews, they tend to be places that where there's, you know— been a lot of advanced publicity, where the, which costs money, and where the you know there's you know a, 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 there are repu- reputations have been brought to bear, like the chef is sort of leveraging all the work he or she has done before. So basically, like, p- people who are already in a position of power. Yeah, I think power is one way to put it. Yeah, I mean the power, either the power to like fund a restaurant or the or the power to, to sort of you know buy publicity or to just generate publicity because of who you are. But but is there a part of you that feels bad when you write a negative review? Oh yeah, yeah. I have felt bad, kind of in retrospect, about things where I thought I, 
I kind of lost control of the balance in a review where like a place that had some good things and bad things, I kind of let the bad run away with it. And I try to watch that now, you know, because you can usually find something to praise. And if you can't, the mathematical probability is so unlikely. Okay, <laughs> that would be kind of interesting. Like, how did they get everything wrong? Right. You know? One restaurant that Pete says came pretty close to getting everything wrong, Guy Fieri's American Kitchen and Bar. It's closed now, but it opened in 2012 in Times Square, which, as you may know, is basically the tourist epicenter of New York City. Pete's review began, Guy Fieri, have you eaten at your new restaurant in Times Square? Some of the choice lines as Pete continues addressing Guy. Why is one of the few things on your menu that can be eaten without fear or regret called a roast pork banh mi, when it resembles that item about as much as you resemble Emily Dickinson? Why did the toasted marshmallow taste like fish? Oh, and we never got our Vegas fries. Would you mind telling the kitchen we don't need them? Thanks. The piece blew up. It became a new front in the country's ongoing culture wars. Some said it was elitist, the New York Times looking down its nose at an idol of middle America. Others saw it as a well-deserved takedown of a TV chef as phony as his food. Yeah, I reread that review, getting ready to speak with you. And the thing that stuck out, I mean, I haven't eaten there. I'll take your word for it that it's as bad as the review says it is or was when you went, at least. Um, the thing that struck me, though, was that it felt personal in a way that some of your other negative reviews didn't feel, don't feel personal. Maybe it's because it was written sort of addressed to Guy Fieri. And it, it read to me more as a referendum on Guy Fieri as opposed to just a referendum on his restaurant. But I'm curious what, what well, your what thought process you, was. What do you think I was saying about Guy Fieri, the person? Well, I, I mean, I, I took it as he, he's one of these people who sort of like is, is indistinguishable from his brand. I, perhaps you didn't mean it at all to be about him as a human being. It was more about him as, I mean, like his, his face is sort of plastered all over this restaurant. Yes. And yet yes. it's so bad. Well, um, I mean, it started from the idea that he was selling himself. That what was supposed to get you in that restaurant was his name. And then the question for me became, you know, all of these people who think you're so great because of your TV show are coming in and forking over their money, and how well are you treating them? I don't know. I, I it, it certainly was read by some people the way you're reading it as, and some people thought it was ad hominem. I don't think it was at all, at all. There was nothing in it about Guy Fieri, the, the guy. You know, the thing that animated that review is I thought he wasn't respecting this cuisine that he'd kind of made his fame and fortune off of, you know, wings and, and nachos and all that stuff made him, made him rich, right? And then he treats it Without the, I think, the the love it deserves. You're saying wings and nachos deserve more respect. Yeah. As much as that Guy Fieri piece got a ton of attention, Pete wrote another negative review that I actually liked more. It was for a place called Capo Masa, a spinoff of Masa, which is probably the most expensive sushi restaurant in the country. I, I've never been to any of the Masa restaurants. Much of the review for Capo Masa was written like one of those MasterCard ads. You know, tickets to the game, $200, time with your kid, priceless. Here's Pete reading from the piece. 
price of a maki roll of chopped fatty tuna wrapped in rice with caviar piled on each of the eight pieces, $240. I could never bring myself to order it or two dishes filigreed with white truffles. The fried rice with mushrooms, $120, or the omi beef tataki, $150. So I can't tell you how any of them taste, but I can tell you that by the time I spotted something for less than $80, it struck me as a steal. So how, how do you factor in the role of cost, the price? How does that determine well, the I th- direction review takes? I think, I mean, I don't know. Maybe this is delusional, but I like to tell myself that there are people who maybe it's not easy for them to go to places I've recommended, but the, but it's a, you know, it's a splurge that they're willing to go for if it's rewarded. Mediocre expensive food is something that only the rich can afford. I, I almost feel like with, with a place like, if you got a place that's charging $240 for eight pieces of sushi. Yeah. It, it, it is, doesn't matter what it costs. It's probably, you're right. They are targeting people who don't care how much it costs, who only want to be able to say they went to that restaurant. It's a status symbol to be able to afford to eat there. I think that's true. And I think that's part of what Masa, the sh- as Masa the chef became Masa the brand, that exorbitant pricing became part of the brand. What I like about the Capo Masa review is that I perceive it as a repudiation of the people who would go there and spend that much money and tell me how great it is. No one ever says they had a bad meal at a place like that because it's like the emperor has no clothes. If you go and blow $1,000 on sushi, you're not going to walk out of there and say it wasn't worth it because then you're admitting that you're an idiot. Oh gosh, yeah. I don't. I I don't think I review the the people. I mean, I <laughs> I actually try really hard not to. Well, you're you right, and, and I'm not suggesting that you did. That, that wasn't the way the piece was written. I'm just saying that that was one of the things that I liked about it because what I took, what I chose to take from it. Maybe this is more a statement uh, comment on me, but it was more like, um, yeah, that's right. There's no way that eight pieces of sushi could ever be worth two hundred and forty dollars. That's right, and whatever it was that you chose to spend your money on that night, you had a better meal right. than what these. Rich idiots had right, yeah, right. And, and that and right. and so I I took it as personal validation of my own choices. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's not my intention, but, <laughs> I, but, but I endor- I'll endorse that. Okay. <laughs> as I said, I loved Pete's piece on Capo Massa, but the restaurant itself was not a surprising choice for his column. Massa is a big name in the fancy food world. It would have been more shocking if Pete hadn't reviewed it. But another review of his that I loved was a very surprising choice. Senor Frogs in Times Square. Now, in case you're unfamiliar, Senor Frogs is a chain of theme restaurants that aims to bring the most touristy, spring breakish beach vacation experience to you. I had to ask Pete to read from his review. This is hard to read because I think there should be kind of like music in the background or something. Everybody dance now! Yeah, it's more ex- All right, we'll exactly. That. We'll add that after the fact. Exactly. All right, get ourselves in the mindset. You're at Senior Frogs in Times Square. The music hits. People are dancing on speakers. I imagine confetti falling from the ceiling continuously. I don't know if that's true, but that's how I imagine it. There's probably a disco ball somewhere. Go. Senor Frog's is not a good restaurant by most conventional measures, including the fairly basic one of serving food. One night, I got just two of the half dozen appetizers I had asked for. Another time, the starters showed up on schedule, but after nearly two hours, the main courses still had not appeared. What happened to our food, we finally asked. That's what I'm wondering, our server said brightly. (laughs) Like, where is it? 
getting just half of what you order at Senior Frogs can be a blessing if it's the right half. <laughs> but here, hold my frogasm. I need to stand on the speakers and dance because I had more fun at Senor Frogs than at almost any other restaurant that has opened in the last few years. True, it's a particular kind of fun, compulsory hilarity, scheduled spontaneity, a scripted theater of the inane with random outbreaks of mediocre tech specs. Senor Frogs' brand of fun is so mindless that it's embarrassing to give in to at first, but eventually everybody I brought there did give in Maybe because we're all so desperate to let go a little bit. So where did Senior Frogs succeed where Guy Fieri's place failed? Uh, <laughs> I can never talk about it without laughing. I, um, uh, <laughs> um, Senior Frogs has a, you know, a whole kind of entertainment department, like a cruise ship that's all kind of focused on like getting everybody to have a good time. And it sounds totally annoying. And yet, you know, it's sort of stupid to resist it. You know, you can't just say, no, I'm here for the food. Like, are you kidding? (laughs) Are you kidding me? You came to Senior Frogs for the food? Like, get in the conga line, you moron. You know? Uh, And and I never felt when I was at, at Guy's Restaurant, I never felt that there was anybody in that restaurant who cared if I had a good time or if anybody had a good time. So those are some of Pete's greatest hits. But I wasn't going to let him leave the studio without scoring a sporkful exclusive Pete Wells review. Pete, I hear you're a big fan of Oreos. It, it is a good cookie. Yes. Well, how, how many stars do you give? Do you give an Oreo? Well, it's kind of like I mean, like it's like a four-star conception. At least it's like a four-star idea. Like this, like black chocolate, really crisp and bitter, like surprisingly bitter for an American-made product that you give to children. But what do you think, Pete? To me, it's too hard. I don't love a very hard cookie. Like I don't like those tates, those really flat, oh, hard uh-huh, ones. I don't uh-huh. like a I don't like a cookie that's pure crunch. I want a cookie to be more like crispy and chewy. That's interesting. And, and that's so, definitely a, a divide. I think. Okay. Um, that's you know so, um, some of us like me like a like more crunch in a cookie. If I'm gonna have store bought cookies, I would rather have the artificially chewy ones, and I don't care what they put mm, in there. Mm, like, give mm. me those little Entenmann's ones that right, are like right, 400 right. calories for a silver dollar chocolate chip those cookie. Those are amazing. Yes, they're like, am- they're amazing. Like almost like you know, like wow, how how do you do that? Right. But like, I would take those over to a classic Oreo. Yeah, because the Oreo is too much, too focused on crunch. Well, I, I understand that opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't, I mean, I think that the, yeah. I th- but see, this is the issue, Pete, is I, th- this is where your taste dictates. And so well, if you were going to really. write a New York Times review of an Oreo versus of a, of a Chewy Chips Ahoy or an Entenmann soft chocolate cookie, you would write a review saying the Oreo was so great. And I would then go out and eat the Oreo because Pete Wells told me it was good. And I'd be like, no, too crunchy. Yeah, but wouldn't you be able to see where I was coming from at least? I would probably say Pete and I have different tastes. Yeah, maybe. And, and in the future, this will inform my opinion of his opinion of cookies. Right. Maybe you would. I mean, and that's a, certainly a thing where I, th- I think that, like, sometimes the chef and I have different tastes. <sighs> you know, like, there you have it. Because I, f- I feel like I, I have strong opinions about food, for sure, you know, but, like, I 
like when I go to a restaurant, I might be like, ah, oh, I don't think that this works, or I don't. But I would be like, but maybe I just don't understand it. Yeah, like I would just think like, oh, like maybe this chef is operating on another level, and I'm just the one. I'm the dummy. As a civilian, I would say, no, you're entitled to not like it. But as a professional, I would say your job is to eat that thing over and over until you think you do understand it. That's Pete Wells, restaurant critic for The New York Times. And hey, it's a big week for us. We're dropping another episode on Thursday. Later this week, we're dropping the third episode of Deep Dish with Sola and Ham. They're going to look at the surprising origins of the iconic Mexico City dish, Tacos al Pastor. Tacos al Pastor are made on a trompo. It's a giant tower of meat that spins as it cooks. The inspiration for the trompo comes from thousands of miles away from Mexico. That's next week. Meanwhile, don't forget to send us your food disputes. Are you having a food fight with a friend or family member? Do you have a hot take you want to share? I want to hear from you. Send me an email at hello at sporkful.com. This show is originally produced by me along with... And Sani. And... Ngofen Putibuele. The Sporkful team now includes Emma Morgenstern, Andres O'Hara, and Jared O'Connell. Music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman. And we're Barbara. And Bruce from North Aurora. Illinois, reminding you to eat Eat more, more, eat eat better, better, and eat eat more more better. better.